You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. My name's Joan, and I'll be reading from Matthew 11, 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Let me pray for us as we dig into this together. God, we thank you for inspiring Matthew to capture these words of Jesus and that we get to come to you, God, through Jesus. And we pray that each person here that is with us in this room, each person that watches this online would do that, that we would all come to you, Jesus, and that we would take your yoke upon us and we would find rest for our souls. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Tell you a quick story. Uh, my wife, Emily, gave birth to our twin daughters 17 years ago, a little over 17 years ago, which is just bonkers for me to even <laughs> say that. I'm feeling older and older every day. Uh, but yeah, Blythe and Naomi were born over 17 years ago now, and as Emily gave birth to them, as I look back on that time, I just think, man, she was a champion. Like, can you imagine giving birth to twins? Maybe some of you can. Maybe some of you know that. Uh, But if you don't know, having twins actually classifies your pregnancy as a high-risk pregnancy, which means uh, that the reason why, I guess, is is because not only is there more uh, potential for difficulty in the delivery, but there's also a lot more wear and tear that it puts on your body, putting you in all kinds of danger during that gestation process. And we have been seeing a midwife for the first portion of the pregnancy, and Emily was measuring normal, everything was normal, and so we had no idea that she was pregnant with twins until week 20 when we went to our first ultrasound. And what that meant is that we had a lot more ultrasounds uh, that we had to attend to after that. And uh, one of them that happened after week, or I guess it was during week 34. We were there, and they said, you know, we, we need to assign you a non-stress test. Anybody know what a non-stress test is? It's the most oxymoron of a name ever. A non-stress test. <laughs> and yet they, they put all these wires on you, and everybody's poking you, and there's all these beeping sounds. You're like, is that good? Is that bad? You don't know what's going on. I wasn't even the one being tested, and I was stressed. You know what I mean? And the bad news is... <clears throat> In that non-stress test, we found out that Emily had preeclampsia, which, if you don't know, it's high blood pressure. It can actually lead to the death of the mother, the death of the child. It can lead to the death of both. It's very scary and very serious. 
And so just to kind of put a point on how serious it was, they said to us, you're not leaving the hospital until these babies are born. So kind of unexpectedly early on in the pregnancy, although not that surprisingly with twins, <clears throat> we ended up sticking there. And kind of our hopes for these babies being born without drugs or without surgery, they were looking pretty dim at that point. But they did tell us, they were like, well, we'll at least try to induce labor and, and just see if, if her body will, you know, get tricked into thinking that it wants these babies to be born right now. And of course, it didn't work. Her body said no. It said, no way. This isn't the time. We're not ready yet. And, uh, and, and this went on. Emily and I have differing accounts of how long this went on, of course. But I seem to remember from the time that we showed up at that hospital for that non-stress test to the time that they were born was around 40 hours. 40 hours straight. Whatever the, the length was, it was, it was long enough that it was, it was foggy at the point that, that it was over. And, and even though I wasn't the one giving birth, even though I wasn't the one having all these contractions, I was absolutely exhausted. I mean, I've been up at one point for, for around 30 hours. I finally couldn't, I gave in. I crashed. I could not stay awake any longer. I woke up a couple hours later and I was still zonked uh, after only just a short period of sleep, but I was with it enough to hold Emily's hand as she uh, pushed, and, and I was with it enough, awake enough to be present and, and welcome our wonderful girls as they entered the world. One of the best moments of my whole life. Amazing. And looking back at that time when I fell asleep, that was probably the most tired that I've ever been in my whole life. Uh, I, I can't honestly fathom how Emily was feeling. I wasn't, again, one, the one giving birth, and yet I was that tired. And I was thankful that I at least got a little bit of rest. But the reason why I'm telling you this story is because I was experiencing physical exhaustion. I'm guessing every person in this room at some point has experienced physical exhaustion. It's very familiar. We know when we're physically tired. But do we know when we're spiritually tired? Do we, do we recognize the symptoms of a soul that is weary? Do we know when our souls are tired? Do we know why we're experiencing spiritual exhaustion? My thesis, if you want to use that word today, is a soul is tired when it strives to do what can only be done with God. Soul is tired when it strives to do what can only be done with God. And unfortunately, we strive apart from God all the time. I mean, before we know Jesus, before we meet him, we're spending our whole lives striving to, to be human, striving to figure out what it even means to be human, when what it truly means to be human is to reflect his image, something that we cannot do apart from him in full. That might be you today. But even once we meet God, even once we know God, we're, we're prone to the same problems that we had before we met him. We try to keep, you know, depending on our own strength and our own strategies to find our way in life, to, to do things like resisting temptation or even positively to, to do good works, to, to, to live in the ways that God has commanded us to live. We, we strive to do these things apart from him. And it's so sad, so sad. And th this is why I want you to hear this today. 
Because as St. Augustine is famous for having said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. The only way for our souls to find rest is to yoke ourselves to Jesus. I want you to hear that today. The only way, the only remedy for our tired souls is to find rest in Jesus. And so how do we get it? How do we get it? Well, first we have to qualify for rest. And that's what I want to share with you from verses 25 through 27. It said, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Okay, last week, if you were with us or you watched that online, you might remember we looked at judgment. It's pretty heavy. And, and, and this tells us here that there's actually a close connection to judgment with what Jesus is talking about. It says at the beginning, at that time. It, this is telling us that this follows just after that judgment section. And the connection that I made last week, as I said, we exit judgment when we enter rest. And so judgment and rest are kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, if you want to think of it that way. And here Jesus is going to offer this invitation, this 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 invitation away from judgment and into rest, but first he has to clarify something, and that's what he does here. What does he clarify? His soul is at rest because he is one with God the Father. That is what he's clarifying for us before he makes that invitation. He says, no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows God apart from me. Now, interestingly, in a moment, Jesus is going to use this word yoke to describe this oneness and this union that Jesus' disciples can have with him. But before he does that, he basically says that he is yoked to the Father. Now, of course, he's not just yoked to the Father, but that's the picture that he's painting. Beyond that, he's telling us he's not just yoked to the Father, he's actually one with the Father in the sense that he is God, that he shares the the same attributes and the same essence as God the Father. And here's what's so incredible about this. That same union that he has with the Father, the same singleness of mind, the same essence and attributes that he enjoys with God the Father, that is the same union that he will invite us to share with him. Just let that sink in for a minute. I mean, not to the point where we, obviously we don't become God, right? That's not what I'm saying, but we are united to him in the same way, in the same kind of relationship. That's acceptance, friends, that you will never know or experience from any person on earth. It's acceptance beyond what you can even dream of or imagine, and that is rest. The only catch is that you have to qualify for it. 
You see that? That's what Jesus is saying. Not just anyone can know this rest. Not just anyone can enter into this rest. How do we qualify it? He said, be like a little child. Be like these little children that he talks about here. Not like these others that he talks about who are wise and understanding. Now, if you've read your Bible much, you might have been a little bit tripped up by that. Like, hold on, I thought that being wise and having understanding is a good thing, right? And you'd be right. If you look at the Proverbs, for example, all over the place, it's trying to teach us to have wisdom and understanding. These are good things. And, And even in the New Testament, we're taught that Jesus is wisdom incarnate, But he uses these terms, wise and understanding here, I think, a bit sarcastically, which I think is also really funny. I love the way that Jesus kind of jabs these things uh, very subtly. He uses these, I think, almost like he's using air quotes, if you can imagine, okay? So this is basically what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. You get that? That's basically what he's doing. And he's referring to those who are not truly wise, who do not truly have understanding, but those who are wise in their own eyes. Those who, as we talked about last week, believe that they don't need God. These are people who are self-sufficient. I've got it under control. I'm good all on my own. And their defining characteristic is that they're not like these little children that Jesus says God has been revealed to. They're not like little children. They're not like children of God. See, the main goal in life for these wise and understanding people is that they don't want to be children, even if it means being children of God. And you know what's so fascinating is that this word, this Greek word that's translated as children here, it isn't just describing any sort of kid or any age of kid. It literally means infants. Okay, just think about that for a minute. Infants. That is the position that we must be in in order to receive the rest that Jesus has on offer today. What is one word that you would use to describe an infant? Helpless. Dependence. Yes. Good ones. I thought for sure someone was going to say cute, which I would agree. Yeah. What? Crying and screaming. Yeah. I was going to say poopy, but um, I, th- I think that these other ones are much more accurate, right? Helpless, right? Needy, humble. If you want to receive the rest that Jesus is offering you today, you got to be like that. That is how you must come to him. You must like a, be like a child. You must be like an infant, humble, needy, dependent, helpless. That is how you qualify for rest. But how do you actually find it? Jesus tells us in verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Okay, let's begin digging into this a bit just by going back over what a yoke is. We talked about that briefly last week. 
And here, this is a metaphor that Jesus is using to describe, like I said, being united to him as he is united to God the Father. It's knowing God in your deepest, innermost being. But what is, what is a yoke in a, in a much bigger and broader sense than even that, than specifically how Jesus is talking about it? A yoke is an instrument of labor. It's, it's what people use, like this picture we used last week, remember, to, to connect two beasts of burden to one another so that they share the load and they lighten the load of, that, the, that the other one is carrying. In the Old Testament, this same picture, this, this metaphor was actually used quite a bit. And in the Old Testament, a yoke could be seen as something that was either positive or negative. I'll give you one example uh, where they use the yoke metaphor to describe what the king requires of you. What are his decrees? What are the king's commands for the people? And, and this could be a positive or a negative thing depending on the king. For example, when uh, King Solomon died, his son Rehoboam reigned in his place, as we hear a Baskillian times in the book of 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, I think it is, yes, it says uh, the people, they come to Rehoboam and, and they say to him, they say, your father made our yoke heavy. And they're talking about like Solomon made them build the temple, made them build palaces. I mean, all sorts of developments, amazing, wonderful things, but very heavy, very burdensome. And the people come to this king and they say, now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke upon us and we will serve you. Now, of course, King Rehoboam goes on to heap even more work on them. He basically makes his own people into his slaves which then led to the split of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah and all sorts of evil and idolatry that resulted from that. And so the word yoke was often used as a way of describing this oppressive rule from like a tyrannical pagan king. So that's one way that it was used, very, very negatively. But another way that the word yoke was used was very positive. It was a metaphor to talk about the Jewish law. And so while taking a yoke upon you could be seen as very negative, I mean, it feels, again, you see that picture of those two oxen or whatever those were, that feels like a big burden. But when the yoke of God's commandments was on you, it was actually seen as the greatest good that someone could undertake. In fact, even to this day, if you go to a Jewish bar mitzvah, uh, this young man, or the, I guess a, what's it called, a bat mitzvah, the young woman, they would bind themselves to the law. They literally take the law, write it on these little tiny pieces of paper and wrap it around their arms as a way of showing their loyal commitment to Yahweh. It was beautiful. It was like, I am so committed to you, Lord. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get your commandments all over me. I, I want to live inside of him. Beautiful thing. But you see, back in Jesus' day, these religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had taken all of that beauty and they had distorted it into something that was absolutely hideous. They had gone from something, taken God's law that was very positive and they turned it into something that was negative. And Jesus gets really angry about this later on in Matthew in chapter 23. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees, those are the religious leaders, those are the pastors, if you will, the, 
the bishops, the, the priests, and all that kind of thing. These guys are the leaders. And they, he says, they sit on Moses' seat. They're the ones who have the authority to teach you God's commandments, to teach you God's law, and to tell you to obey him. So do and observe whatever they tell you. When they're telling you what God says to do, and, he, and they, they're telling you from his word, go ahead and do it. But don't do the works that they do, Jesus says. Don't do all that extra stuff that they've added to it. Don't just follow in their command. For they preached but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The Pharisees heaped burdens on other people that they were not willing to bear themselves. They were like parents who tell their kids, do what I say, not what I do. How many of you guys have ever heard that said by one of your own parents? Or as a parent, maybe you've said that to your kids. Yes. And so in the name of, of loyalty to Yahweh, they added all these rules, all these regulations to the already long list of over 600 rules and regulations, all these laws from the Old Testament. And why did they say they did it? Because they believed adding these things would ensure people would follow the law. People, if, if we just add all these extra rules, then people will actually obey what God has to say. When in actuality, they weren't devoted to God. Their motivation was completely different. They actually wanted to gain power and control over people. They didn't love God. They didn't love people. And sadly, this same exact thing still goes on in the church today. In the name of obedience to Jesus, religious leaders, pastors like myself, heap all sorts of rules and regulations on people that aren't actually in the Bible. And if Jesus were here today, he'd come to us and he'd say, yeah, definitely where they can prove that what they're saying is from the scripture, obey them. But in all other cases, do not. See, the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees, aside from the fact that they didn't love God, which is their biggest problem, is that they didn't understand how human beings work. They didn't know how human beings work. The same problem that pastors who heap burdens on congregations, they don't understand how people work. They don't understand what motivates us, what keeps us close to God's heart. But God does. He knows, he, he made us, he knows how we work, and he knows that we were never intended to be bound to his law. Rather, his law was meant to bind us to him. You get that? We were never met, intended to be bound to God's law. His law was meant to bind us to him. Obedience to his commands was always meant to be relational. Whenever it ceases to be an act of devotion to him, people grow tired, people grow weary, because the only thing that makes someone want to obey is love. You know this from your own experience. I mean, you can watch this happen with kids, kids that truly know that their parents love them, they want to obey. Kids that truly love their parents, they want to obey. There's this reciprocated, loving relationship. And so 
Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, we see God reminding his people, telling them, I love you, I love you, I love you. You need to know this. You need to understand this. One great example is in Isaiah 54 where he says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be moved, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be moved, says the Lord who has compassion on you. God reminds them, I love you. Don't ever forget how much I love you. And then his people would also, they would remind themselves of this because they knew that they needed it. They would remind themselves of this. I mean, just in the Psalms alone, 123 times, they would remind themselves of God's steadfast love. One great example is in Psalm 36. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds, it's limitless. It goes on forever. And then the people, they would remind themselves of their need then to also love him in places like Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Why do they do this over and over and over and over again? Because binding our souls to his love binds us also to obey him. And this theme, it it continues well into the New Testament. One great example is in 1 John 5, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments, they're not burdensome. They're not a burden. You see, Jesus' yoke, it's gentle. His yoke, it's light. But it's not less demanding than the Old Testament law is. In some cases, it's actually more demanding. But as Michael Green says, it's the yoke of love, not the yoke of duty. It's the response of the liberated, not the duty of the obligated. And so what is this rest that Jesus is offering? It's freedom from the yoke of the Pharisees. It's freedom from all of those added religious rules and regulations. It's freedom from being wearily just sort of dragged along by all of these extra commandments. It's freedom from obedience as a pathway to God. You get that? Your obedience does not lead you to God, but God brings you to himself. Jesus is the pathway to God. Obedience is the response to God's love. It's not the way in which we get to him. And so how do we find rest? We yoke ourselves to Jesus. We find rest when we yoke ourselves to him. Some of you today, you have weary, weary souls. Some of you are weighed down with burdens that you were never intended to carry on your own. And if that's you, Jesus is saying, come to me. Yoke yourself to me. And you you might be thinking, maybe you've been thinking this whole time, how can a yoke be rest? I mean, it does seem counterintuitive, right? A yoke is an instrument of labor. How can a yoke be rest? But keep in mind, if you're yoking yourself to him, you're uniting your soul to him, and therefore he will help you carry it, your burden will be light because you have been united to him. Why does he do this? Because 
He wants not only to welcome you back. If you're a sinner, he wants to welcome you to him. He says, come to me. But he also wants to train his disciples. He wants you to learn his ways. Can you believe this? The, the, the God of the universe wants to train your soul. The God of the universe wants you to come to him so he can carry your burdens with him. Sorry, so he can carry your burdens with you. There we go. And so rest does not mean no more work. I think a lot of us distort this and we, and we begin to think it that way. No, 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 it's far, far from it. In fact, uniting ourselves to Jesus, he tells us in other places, it even means carrying our cross with him. See, being yoked, it is still work because you're always pulling something. A yoke is designed to pull a plow. It's designed to pull a wagon. You weren't made for a workless existence. You were made to work with God, which means that the work is not burdensome and oppressive to our souls. See, here's the good news. If you are yoked to Jesus, you're never alone. You're never carrying it on your own. But you also have to remember, being yoked to Jesus, it's an exclusive relationship. It's not like a weird three-headed monster where it's you and Jesus and something else. This is Jesus leading the way and you learning his ways. And so we have to uh, remove ourselves from anything else that would control our commitment to Jesus. That's what he's saying. See, this can happen so subtly in our lives subtly things creep in where we attach ourselves to this stream or, or this yoke over here and we begin to get pulled along without even recognizing it because this, this thing that's pulling us along, this person that's pulling us along, it's so familiar that you don't even realize what's happening. Sometimes not even always bad things, but bad things to labor for, bad things to work for, and so your soul, it gets weary. It gets weary. I want to, as we close our time, I just want to look at a number of the ways in which I think we can yoke ourselves to things other than Jesus and the way that that can make your soul weary. First one may be the most obvious one. It's work. It's just plain and simple. It's your job. I want you to think about maybe some of you, why, why are you working 80 hours a week? Why are you, you know, why are you available 24-7, right? Why, why do you have to finish that project when you're on the edge of a mental breakdown? Have you actually yoked yourself to work? Is, is your work pulling you away from the life that you can find in Christ? Is your soul wearied because of the work that you're doing? I'll give you another example. Sports. Uh, not only obsessing over professional sports, the latest scores, the latest trades, all that drama, but maybe even probably in a more pronounced way that I've observed this is is. Uh, competitive sports. Those of you who are parents and you're, you're trying to encourage your kids, you're trying to let them have some fun, you're trying to give them an opportunity. These competitive sports, though, man, they can creep in and you can yoke yourself to them before you realize it. 
Soon they're pulling you away from your relationship with Jesus. Your whole family's life is being run by competitive sports. Have you yoked yourself to sports and is your soul weary because of it? Another one, this one's probably the the most pronounced to me personally, is technology. It's these guys right here. What's your relationship like with your technology? Have you yoked yourself to technology? Maybe it's through social media and you just cannot stop obsessively checking how many likes you got, obsessively checking your messages. Or maybe it's your calendar and you've just built up so much busyness that you're being dragged along by, by what you've put on your own calendar or your own to-do list. And I mean, I've, personally, I've even joked about, I just do what the robots tell me, you know? And, and I, it's a joke when I say it, but at the same time, there's some reality to that, right? And that's yoking yourself to your technology. It's doing whatever this says to do rather than what Jesus says to do. Have you yoked yourself to technology and is your soul wearied? Because of the, just the compulsiveness around it. Certainly, we, there are certain th- things in life that we just can't get away from. And it seems like modern life is, especially in a city, is dependent on these things. Maybe you can't get rid of it altogether, but it can't become the yoke, this thing that drives your life. Another one, culture. Man, Why does our culture have to be so busy? Why do we have to take part in it? Why do we have to get dragged into the ways in which we fill up our lives and detach ourselves from the yoke of Christ, the discipline of learning from him, the the joy of getting to be in relationship with him? Or, Or maybe it's materialism and our culture is just drawing your attention to all the things that you don't have, all the things that you need, and now you're in a mound of debt. Because you've yoked yourself to the way of our culture. Or you're following the crowd on, on, on the latest social issue and, and you've yoked yourself to the culture to the point where you can't even tell the difference between what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to follow the crowd and your soul. It's weary. Another one, resisting temptation to sin. You know, so often, I can't tell you how often in my earlier days of following Jesus, but even as I walk with other people, resisting temptation to sin, it's done in our own strength. It's done in our own self-sufficiency. We try to keep depending on our own way, finding our own way in life. Andrew Murray says, we find the Christian life so difficult because we seek for God's blessing while we live in our own will. We're being guided by our own will rather than yoking ourselves to the rest that we find in Jesus? Have you been yoked to your own self-sufficiency and your own strength as you try and resist temptation to sin? And is your soul weary today? Another one, a couple more. Doing good works. So it's not just avoiding doing wrong things, but it might also be trying to do good things. You're doing it again in your own strength and all these acts of generosity, good things that God invites us to, they become burdens, they become draining because we carry them without Jesus when he wants to be there with you. 
Maybe you're doing them to try and keep God happy when God is already happy. God already loves you. You don't need to do all of this stuff to make him happy. You get to do it with him as a result of his already existing happiness. Have you yoked yourself to doing good works and is your soul weary? Last one, enduring suffering. I look across the room, I I know the stories, so many people in our church family right now who are suffering and it grieves my heart. We pray for you every week. Maybe you're going through some kind of horrible challenge with with your health or maybe with a a family member who's, who's struggling and you're just hurting with them. But are you trying to endure suffering alone? Are you trying to do it apart from Jesus? And is your soul, has it grown weary as a result of it? You know, I just thought of another one. This is another one that I I think is very tempting in our culture, and that is relationships. Have you yoked yourself to a relationship with another person that is pulling you away from Jesus, and therefore is your soul weary? What I want to leave you with, I know that feels overwhelming. I'm just kind of like heaping all the ways that we can grow weary apart from Jesus, and I'm doing it on purpose because I want you to find that to be completely repulsive and you run far away from that and come to him. Here is what Jesus is saying to you. I want to reread this passage with the message, which is a, it's not a translation, it's a, it's a paraphrase. But here's what Jesus is inviting you to. If you're in any one of those categories or more and you're just feeling the weight of all of these things, here's what Jesus is inviting to you. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. We find rest when we yoke ourselves to Jesus. Community group instructions as I close this. What do you think are some symptoms of a soul that is not at rest in Jesus? Is there a time in your life where you learn firsthand that we only find rest when we yoke ourselves to Jesus? And as we prepare for Good Friday and Easter, I want to encourage you to spend 30 minutes praying for Trinity and all the churches in our region as people get to hear the gospel, some for the first time, and get invited to him. Let me pray as we begin to respond to him together. God, for those in this room today who are weary, who are heavy laden, who are carrying burdens that that you have promised to carry with us, I pray that today they would find rest for their soul and find it in you. For those who came here today, God, that didn't know you, didn't know this eternal rest that you have on offer, God, I pray that they would encounter you, Jesus, that they would meet the living God as they come to him through you today.
pray that people would find life and find it abundantly in your name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.